You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Ladies and gentlemen, hello, can you all hear me? Everybody can hear me, excellent. Um, We're all here this evening uh, for this segment of the evening, something that I have looked forward to tremendously and I know that so many, well just about everybody else has as well. Um, This is the Marilyn Wallace Memorial Lecture. What I'm going to do is tell you a little bit, give you, you can't hear? Oh. Hang on, I'll, I'll fiddle with the technology. Could be, anything could. Help! <laughs> so I do when my computer crashes. I rush into my husband, who also works at home, and go, Help! <laughs> Can you hear me now? <clears throat> not, that wasn't me. It, was it? Oh, uh, d- 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 n- nev- rule number one, never fiddle with the knobs. Yeah. In fact, I, I, well, maybe we should bring that so you don't knock it, you know? I always worry about people with elbows and knobs. Um, Tony, voice check, can you hear me? Okay, right. I'm so <laughs> no, seriously, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, I just want to give you a little bit of background about this lecture, and I will add that at the end of the lecture, there is no, there, we do not have questions, because you, apart from anything else, you have to go straight into the, the next session, but it is a lecture fully compacted in its own space, so to speak. Uh, the Marilyn Wallace Memorial Lecture, we launched the first one last year, and we did that in the memory and to honor Marilyn Wallace, who was one of the co-founders of this amazing conference with Judy Grieber. Um, it, it's very close to all our hearts for what everything that she did for this conference, not least in, in being the inspiration behind it and her amazing con- contribution to really setting the tone and the scene for this conference. Uh, it, it, as you know, those, especially those of you that have come back again, it is a very collegiate conference. This is where we, we come, we're writers coming to learn from each other. And there's really a sense of, um, uh, if you will, that conversation, the conversation about what it is to be a writer, and especially in, this, uh, in, in the realm of mystery. And conversation, the root of that means learning together. And that tone was set by Marilyn. Um, when we talked about launching the first lecture, Judy Grieber gave the first uh, memorial lecture. Uh, I asked Judy, you know, about Marilyn. What would she say about Marilyn? And what would she, th- would she think about an introduction to the lecture? And, and actually, one of the first things she said was that if, if Marilyn could hear the august title of this lecture, she would probably fall about laughing and uh, be absolutely in convulsions. But she said, Marilyn was quite passionate about teaching and helping people with their writing and very excited, excited at finding and nurturing the writerly spark she found. 
So on that note, uh, it gives me just the greatest pleasure to introduce this year's speaker, uh, Laurie King, and uh, who should actually need absolutely no introduction, but I'm going to give it anyway. Uh, Laurie King is a third-generation Northern Californian. She's lived most of her life in the San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, her background is certainly as mixed as any writer's, from degrees in theology and to managing a coffee store and to raising children, vegetables, and the occasional building. Her writing very much reflects her background, so it comes as probably no surprise that the characters in her books spend time in the Bay Area and in England, where she has another home, and they're interested in theology, architecture, travel, and all those good things. She started writing in 1987 when her second child began school, and she had her first novel published in 1993. Since that time, uh, the novel A Grave Intent was published. She's averaged a book a year, and she's won many prizes ranging from Agatha's to the Wolf Award, which was for a monstrous regiment of women. And the characters in Grave Intent and several, and five, Talent. sorry? Oh, sorry, I get, why am I saying Grave Intent? Probably because I've read it that way. A Grave Talent. Actually, I think that should, why don't we throw that in for another possibility? Yeah, yeah, you can have that one. Heck, I was thinking I might run away with that one. A Grave Talent. And that tells me that it's, I've got a grave eyesight problem. <laughs> Maybe I need to go to the 2.0s. Um, a Grave Talent centered around Inspector uh, Kate Martinelli, Mart Martinelli of the San Francisco Police Department. There's five novels in that series. In 1994, The Beekeeper's Apprentice was published, featuring young Mary Russell, who becomes an apprentice, then partner of Sherlock Holmes in early 20th century England. The books in that series appear regularly, and they've taken the duo and their cohorts into the 20s and around the world, winning admiration far and wide. They've, the novels have actually allowed Laurie to explore all sorts of ideas, the roots of conflict in the Middle East and Afghanistan, feminism and early Christianity, patriotism, individual responsibility, while also having a rousing good time with revisiting the scenes of the Hound of the Baskervilles and Kim, setting a pair of Bedouin nomads down in a grand country house in England, I'd like to have been a fly on the wall, and forging an unlikely relationship between two remarkably similar individuals who happen to be separated by age, sex, and background. Uh, Laurie has also written standalone novels, um, or she says more or less standalone, Two of the books, Folly and Keeping Watch, share characters. Khalifa's Daughters, which is written under the pseudonym Lee Richards, may someday take uh, place within a trilogy, and Touchstone is being considered as the basis for a future series. That is what you call, ladies and gentlemen, a body of work. And uh, with no further ado, I have great pleasure in introducing just the amazing Laurie King. Thank you. to undoubtedly readjust this. Can you all hear me all right? Yeah. Ah, not quite so different in height. Um, thank you, and I, I just wanted to say that I'm very honored to, to be in the 
in the shoes of Marilyn Wallace. I, I, Marilyn was a lovely, lovely woman, and I, I hope most of you got to meet her. Um, I, I, I did not meet her enough, um, but she was, a, she was a lovely woman. I don't know um, if they managed to get, yes. Do you want to fling those out and see if anyone wants to, yeah. Um, I, I, I gave a, um, a similar address as this um, in Pasadena a few weeks ago. And uh, rather than you thinking I'm recycling this, um, I, this is the improved version. <laughs> um, it started when I came across a, um, I think it was the New Yorker, had their summer fiction, um, f summer reading issue. And uh, in it, it had a, an article on um, whether or not you could learn how to write. It was on creative writing MAs. And in that article, as in so many similar articles, it makes a reference to serious fiction. And, and, and as you might imagine, um, so, some of us take umbrage at the idea that what we write is not solemn and serious. Um, but I thought that instead what I, what I should talk about is, um, you, you got the paper, yes. Twelve, 12 steps to writing frivolous fiction. Um, John Gardner whom I, I normally adore. Um, his, I, I don't know, do you? The art, the art of fiction? This is lovely. Uh, thank, thank you, dear. Um, John Gardner ha, has, a remar has a remark in The Art of Fiction. He says, the first and last important rule for the creative writer then is that though there may be rules, formulas, for ordinary, easily publishable fiction, <laughs> imitation fiction, there are no rules for real fiction any more than there are rules for serious visual art or musical composition. Thanks, John. <laughs> Re really appreciate it. <laughs> um, I, I just love the, this logical fallacy of, of serious versus imitation. Um, and I, I really would propose that instead of serious, we, we, we seriously use the term frivolous fiction. Because frivolous, you know, fr frivolity is hard work. I don't know if any of you have ever seen clowns training, but it's very hard work. Um, there is a picture that I think may actually have appeared in that article on the, uh, on the writing MA um, of, and I, I don't know if you can see it, it doesn't really matter. Um, you can see there's four figures sitting in the background, all of whom are male. There are two figures sitting in the foreground, both of whom are, thank you. Um, and the attitudes of these six people, all of whom are in a creative writing program at Breadloaf in the, I think it's the 30s or maybe 40s, um, Robert Frost being the second one over here, is that, well, of course women would be seated at the feet of the men. Yeah. 
So, 12 rules for frivolous fiction. A dozen steps based on 22 years and, oh my God, 20 books <laughs> of writing peeves and problems. Step number one, write what you don't know. Um, I, I think that you probably have had the correct teachers, the right teachers, who don't say write what you know. But if you have ever had a teacher that says write what you know, would you please just tear up that little part of your brain and let it go? Um, if you're writing what you're knowing really well, you're probably not terribly interested in it. Um, what, what you need to do when you start out a book or you start out a project or you start out a life is to take joy in the research that you're doing, to be as curious as a bear cub. cub. Um, you read everything you can, you take reams of notes, you download a thousand Wikipedia articles, you, you know, fill your hard drive with snapshots, but then you have to get rid of them all. And I would say throw them out, but I know none of you would ever do that. So, so I will just say put them in a secure box and put them away. Because in that huge amount of research and learning and exploring um, this new area, what is important is going to stick in your mind. The kind of thing that has the energy to carry the story is what's going to stick in your mind no matter what you've researched. So write what you don't know. Um, the, the second rule is one that came up when I, uh, I was a new writer, and my, I, th I think my editor had had one of those periods that editors occasionally have where they get a little testy about their books that they've had put in their, their desks. Um, Ruth Cavan, who some of you may know, um, is still at St. Martin's Press. Um, she's, I think, 90 now, and was, was a joy to work with. But I had a book that started with a ringing telephone. And she said, I, every, every mystery out there starts with a ringing phone. You have to do something else. Um, every mystery doesn't actually start with a ringing phone. <laughs> but I think she'd had several in the last month, and she was tired of it. So the, the idea is that if you, if you need a ringing telephone, put a ringing telephone. But you should realize the kinds of things that are cliches, especially in mystery fiction. Um, there are a lot of cliches in crime fiction. The only way you can find out what they are is to read crime fiction. Um, this means that buying hardback fiction it is a deductible expense. <laughs> honey, this is part of my job. I have to read this, um, because otherwise I won't know what is a cliche and what isn't. You, you can take them from the library, but you know it's much better to buy hardback fiction. Um, some of the things that you that you find in um, in mainstream serious fiction are the sorts of things that would just not be permissible in crime fiction. I think, isn't it in in Howard's End where there's this really obvious coincidence about an umbrella? You know, I mean, this, it's a plot, it's a piece of machinery in the plot that is so labored that no crime writer's editor would permit them to get, to get away with it. And, and there it sits in this work of genius, Howard's End. So, you know, literary fiction can do all kinds of things that we can't. Um, that doesn't make them better than us. Really, it doesn't. Rule number three, watch the adverbs. 
and the adjectives and the verbs. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm not saying don't use, adjec don't use adverbs, although adverbs are, are a real no-no in modern fiction. Um, I, think, I think that Hemingway has an awful lot to answer for. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Sometimes, uh, sometimes an adverb is actually better than, than not. Um, if you have, for example, I gave him a blank look, is an awkward kind of phrase, whereas I looked at him blankly isn't. Uh, on the page, I looked at him blankly is a much smoother appearance than to give someone a blank look or check or. Um, Sometimes the word that you're looking for actually is, um, underscores the idea that you're after. So that if, for example, a piece that I was writing the other day, one of my characters is walking through chewing an apple. And um, he, he says, someone's been here, he commented, around the mouthful of apple. Well, that is not as good a phrase as Someone's been here, he commented indistinctly. Because indistinctly is a mouthful. It is the mouthful of apple. So sometimes, you know, sometimes, despite what Hemingway said, um, an adverb is a good thing. The problem is that modifiers in general are visible. And they can be distracting. Um, if you have uh, the option between he's a big man or he's a giant, which of those is stronger? If you have, he shouted loudly, or he bellowed, which of those is stronger? The, the noun and the verb is the, the architecture. It's the meat and potatoes. Um, it's, it's the basis of your writing. Um, the modifiers, the adverbs, and the adjectives, the, the bits and pieces, are the paint or the gravy if you're having meat and potatoes. You don't want paint on meat and potatoes. Um, it's, uh, it, well, I, I don't, personally. Um, but if you, if you watch how you're using the modifiers, uh, they can be much more effective than if you just dump them in all the time. This is what, it, what people mean that when they say, don't use adverbs. Cut out all your adverbs. Cut out all your adverbs. Just keep the ones that mean something. Um, and it's also why. For example, if you're, if, you're using, um, if you're writing dialogue, if the dialogue is strong enough, um, you don't need any kind of <laughs> verb other than said. Every so often, um, another verb you know, demanded or responded. But said is the standard verb for dialogue because you want the strength to be in the words that are said, not in um, a description of how it's being said. Basically, what, what I find is that I need to be aware of the aim that I'm doing in, this, in whatever piece of work that I'm, that I'm doing. Some of them, um, for example, I write this one series that is a woman in her 80s writing her memoirs about her early years with Sherlock Holmes. Um, she is a rather dignified and overly educated individual. Um, and her language is much richer than anyone would have spoken in the 20s. I mean, people didn't talk like Mary Russell in the 20s. People didn't talk like Mary Russell in the 1880s. Um, 
I don't think anyone ever talks like Mary Russell. But she speaks in a rich language with a lot of, uh, of adjectives and, and undoubtedly adverbs um, because she needs to um, give across the flavor of the Victorian past. I mean, she's working with Sherlock Holmes. Conan Doyle didn't write that way, but you need the flavor in there. So when I'm writing a Russell book, there's a lot more richness of language, a lot more modifiers than there would be in a Martinelli or in one of the standalones. Um, and similarly, the, the, the punctuation thing. I mean, if you think about punctuation when you're using it, um, it backs up what you're doing. If you're writing a certain kind of fiction, you want <coughs> short, punchy sentences. You want simple American English. You want the kind of thing that just keeps the writer going like this. Other, other forms of English are much more slow-moving. And they are, um, you know, their whole point is to get the reader to participate in, in the, the game that's going on. So, I mean, that's why Russell, for example, Russell uses a lot of semicolons, whereas the Martinelli books probably don't have as many. If you did a, a semicolon count, is there such a thing? I mean, word counts, punctuation counts. Um, there, I mean, there are certain things that I tend not to use at all. And that's just by taste. I, I don't think I have ever used an exclamation point other than in dialogue, because I just don't like them. I think they're ugly on the page. I don't like them. I think they're, but that's personal. I mean, you're welcome to as many exclamation points as you want. Um, one of the other things that I, that I have had problems with is um, when When you read a book that's 50 years old, if you picked up Dorothy Sayers, whose books were published in the 20s and 30s, um, those books are, for the most part, comprehensible. Every so often, you'll come across a reference that doesn't make a lot of sense, or that hits you as being odd because it's not how we think now. Um, I mean, she has some really awful things to, about, uh, to say about women and about Jews. But you know, I, I tend to forgive that because that was the 20s and 30s. Um, but if you are writing a book now, if you gear it towards a literate foreigner or someone two generations from now, um, it will make sense to people all the way down the line. Now, what I'm talking about here is the number of times where you think that you're using a kind of detail that speaks, and it does speak to you, and it does speak to a certain number of your audience. But don't assume that your readers are going to know what you're talking about all the time. If you are talking about um, the one that particularly bugs me, and I, I, I got to say it's mostly the guys do this, is music. Um, references to musicians, references to style of music, pieces of music, I, I don't know who they're talking about. I don't know who George Pelicanos is talking about when, he, when he's writing about his, his various characters' music tastes. Um, love the books. Wish he would give a bit of a clue about what it is. I mean, you don't need to describe what that piece of music is or where it comes from or what it sounds like. Tell me what it does to him emotionally. Um, similarly, things like 
Jimmy Choo sandals. Now, I happen to know what a Jimmy Choo sandal is. I, I have never worn a Jimmy Choo sandal. I never will wear a Jimmy Choo sandal. But if I didn't know what it was, I would think it was something kind of folksy and handmade. I mean, maybe with rubber tires on the bottom. I mean, I mean, doesn't it sound like something that Santa Cruz, you know, down? You, you know, you have to give just a snippet of a clue of, you know, scarlet and shiny, or how they make the person feel, or um, how expensive they are. That, you know, I, I don't always speak the same language as you. I don't always know your background or your taste. So you have to remember, not when you're writing the book, but when you're rewriting the book, you have to make sure that your references are comprehensible. This is said by a woman who, whom people often say, I have to use a dictionary to read your books. <laughs> That's not the same thing, <laughs> honestly. On the other hand, watch the description already. Um, my, my friend John Gardner um, is often quoted as his, his line about um, detail as being the lifeblood of fiction. And I think it's particularly true of crime fiction. I mean, with a mystery, you are all about the detail. It's all about the detail. Um, however, minute descriptions of things are not always the way to move your story on. They are best saved for if you have someone who's a real maniac about something, then fine. Tell me all about that car's engine and how many, you know, GTUs it has. <laughs> but if you, you know, if you have that same level of detail in everything, it's it's going to um, to bog the story down. Um, I think that it's it's you know vivid vivid detail. That's the lifeblood of fiction, not incomprehensible detail such as Jimmy Choo or endless detail um, su such as uh, the, um, there's I think a two-page description of an archway in the, the name of the rose, which probably is just a little excessive. <laughs> It, it may be three pages, I don't know. <laughs> you know, if, if detail is the lifeblood of fiction, don't, don't let it hemorrhage all over the page. Um, rule number seven, and, and this one is very similar to, this is the other book that I recommend, is Strunk and White. Um, this, this particular one is the illustrated version, which is just charming. Um, you, you don't need it, it's lots of extra pages and William Strunk would not approve of it. Um, but the, the Strunk has rule 17 of omit needless words, which is a great rule. I th you know, who could say any more than that, than omit needless words? Um, I, I think of them as cobweb words because I find that when I'm when I'm thinking my way into a scene, and you know, because I don't outline, um, I, I think my way into pretty much all my scenes. I find I tend to use more words than I need, 
and they clutter up the story until I go through on the rewrite and sweep them all down. So that I'll have in the, in the first draft, I'll say, she cocked her head and looked at him. And in the second draft, I'll say, she cocked her head at him. And then I'll think, she cocked her head. Those cobweb words get in there when I'm not really seeing what she's doing, what her movement is, and why it isn't that she can just cock her head. Um, the problem with that is that sometimes um, you run into the problem of everything extra is not necessarily excess. I'm working on a, I'm working on a piece at the moment. Um, it's very interesting to write a very, very short story. I'm, I'm doing, I did a piece uh, a year ago that was um, made into a, a broadside. It was uh, illustrated, very short story, 650 words, um, about a murder investigation. And I'm writing one now that will go into the, the next book, will go be illustrated and match up with the next book, which is called The Green Man. Um, and I haven't got it down yet. I've got it to 750 words. And I probably will pair at least 40 off of that. But it's fascinating to write a story that is so compact. That is a story. You have a beginning and an end, and it tells you a lot about the characters. And it makes you feel that you know where these characters are going. But you only have 700 words to do it in. It's kind of like that game of the six-word short story. Um, but with that one, I have to be extremely careful with my words. They all have to do double or triple duty. Um, the, a, a phrase not only tells me what that character is doing, but where he's moving and how he feels. So if I have, you know, if I have a budget on the words, I have to be very careful what I'm putting into the basket. Do I want occasionally, you know, if we're talking about baskets and chopping, um, do I want occasionally to put a tin of cinnamon in there in my shopping basket? Well, yes, because there are times when that's the only way you can get a certain palatable taste. And when I'm writing a 650-word short story, I will occasionally spend four or five words to get just the right flavor. So that, for example, and this is not, I mean, the, the story is nowhere near finished yet. I'm still pushing it around a lot. But it started out with a god is born where need and torment meet. And that's too many short words all at the beginning. It's the, the opening word in, into this particular story. And because it's a story about, in effect, a god, it needs to have a mythic flavor. It needs to have poetry to it. Um, so at the moment, I've got a god is born at the place where need and torment meet. Um, that's, that's by no, no means finished. And I'm, sure, I'm sure I'll change the word torment because it doesn't, doesn't fit there. But there are times when extra words are necessary. Um, so, 
it's all about knowing the difference between cobweb words and, and flavor. Too many cobweb words are too much flavor. Um, it, it's sort of like having a bowl of cinnamon. Mm -hmm. um, now, rule, rule eight. Um, it's, voice is something that, um, I, I mean, have all, of, have all of you asked about voice? Have all of you talked about voice? Um, it's one of those things that, that, that everyone seems to be concerned with. And I, I, I wish they wouldn't. Um, I, I wish people would just forget about voice. Um, there, there really is no such thing as voice. Honestly, there's not. Um, of course, this, this isn't true. Um, <laughs> but it's kind of like, it's kind of like por pornography, isn't it? Um, I mean, I, you know it when it's there. But not, not, that, not that I would ever know. Um, but if you have, um, if you have to sit here and, and, and listen to Laurie King telling you about writing, then you're probably not in an MFA writing program. And, and you really don't need to worry about voice. Uh, it's only people who are in one of those horrible writing programs that need to worry about voice. Um, the only voice that you really need to worry about is the voices in your head, um, which are good. They're good voices. We listen to those voices. Um, there's an interesting uh, piece in E.B. White wrote a chapter in um, The Elements of Style. Uh, that's the, he's the white side of Strunk and White um, on, on style. And he writes about a careful and honest writer does not need to worry about style. But if you take his passage and you substitute the word voice in there, you get to achieve voice, begin by affecting none. That is, place yourself in the background. A careful and honest writer does not need to worry about voice. As you become proficient in the use of language, your voice will emerge because you yourself will emerge. Rule nine, be brutal. Not with yourself, but with your writing. And I think this one is tough because I'm, I'm assuming that you are enough like me that I can say we all think what we write is crap. Um, the first draft is worse crap than the later drafts, if you're lucky. Um, but even the later drafts, you look at it and you think, honestly, couldn't I have done better? Um, you have to be brutal with the writing and not with yourself. It doesn't help to say that something is good or bad. Um, what it helps is to say, does it work? Is this as close as I can get it to where I'm aiming? Um, is this as good as I can make it right now? I remember early on, I had a talk with, a, with an agent in England. Um, and I talked to her about a, a story that I you know, was, was shopping around and that I, didn't, I wasn't entirely satisfied with it. And she asked me, rather brutally, why I was then shopping it around if I wasn't happy with it. And it took me a long time to figure out why, why indeed I was shopping it around. Um, because it was as good as I could make it then. And I think that there are times when you have to recognize that um, something 
is as good as you can make it now. And with luck, you will have an editor who will say, if you did this, it would make it better. And that would be great. Um, but if you're brutal with your writing, it, you know, it doesn't mean the same thing as being brutal with, with the person doing the writing. Um, all you can do is cut yourself some slack and, 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 and get back to work. Um, number 10 that I put for seeking feedback. And this is a really difficult one. I don't know about you, but when you first write something, and I, I was one of those who, I didn't show it to anyone until I was finished. I never show anything that I'm doing to anyone until I'm finished. Um, but you write a book, and you, you kind of then offer it to your family, and, and, and your mother says, oh, sweetie, you've written a book. How nice. <laughs> <laughs> And you give it to your husband, and he says, this is what you've been doing all this time? <laughs> um, it's really difficult to get honest comments on what you've done. And sometimes people find writing groups very helpful. Um, I've never belonged to one, so I have no comment on it. Um, because I don't, um, but I, I don't show anyone anything until it's ready to go off anyway. I, I'm not quite sure what I do with a writing group, except listen. <laughs> um, but if you can find a friend who, you know, or a teacher, or someone who, um, who can give you an honest opinion about a book, it helps a lot to have specific questions. So instead of saying, what did you think of it? Which, of course, they're going to say, oh, it's really great. Um, it's better than most of the stuff on the New York Times list. Um, if you have specific questions, such as, at what point did you know who done it? Did I fool you in the end, or how far did you get before you guessed? Um, other questions like, did you feel a sneaky sympathy for the bad guy? Because that kind of thing tells you if you've done the villain right. right? You know, the villain can't be just unrelieved black. He's got to be interesting enough so that people think, yeah, I. I'm, I might have done that myself. Um, but things like, was the plot clear, or were there areas that you didn't you didn't understand? Um, and you can go a step beyond and ask the kinds of questions that refer back to the characters in there, such as, without mentioning the college education of any of my characters, which ones of them do you think went to university? Um, which ones of those do you think have a secret drinking problem that they're not revealing to the writer? Um, which of those <laughs> kick their dog when they get home? Um, you know, specific kinds of questions like that give you the opportunity of feedback that you wouldn't get if you just said, what do you think of it? Um, number 11, read it aloud. You will feel like an idiot but you need to read your stuff aloud. A full book, a short story, it doesn't matter. You need to read it not under your breath, in full voice, because if it's under your breath, you, you, you skip. You, you skip over things. Good copy editors read aloud for a reason, and that is you notice things. You have to pay attention when you're reading. And if you want to be really awful, 
you, you can skip pages. You just pick up a page and read that one. But I, I've never been able to handle that. I have to read in sequence. <laughs> um, but it, it really helps, because if you read it aloud, uh, it's, you notice when each character's name begins with a B. You notice when um, you've draped the scenery with cobweb words. You notice when you forgot to put clues in about who's speaking, um, or you're left in a sentence. You notice the stylistic problems, like when the writing goes bumpy, which is usually when you're trying to feel your way through a plot problem. Um, or just the effect isn't what you're looking at. Or sometimes you find these odd snippets where you're inadvertently um, giving a piece of dog roll that you, you really hadn't, hadn't intended. This morning I was doing, I was working on the rewrite of, of my novel, um, which is due in 30 days from now. Um, and I, I, no <laughs> I noticed I had used the word against four times in seven typewritten lines. <laughs> <laughs> What? Why does one's brain do these things? I really don't know. Um, it, I, I, I took out three of them, don't worry. Um, but I probably put one in somewhere else too, so uh, I have to check. I, I once had um, the word back um, four times in two sentences, so I, I try not to do that too. But you notice it when you read it aloud. And, and you do feel like an idiot. Um, last of all, I would suggest that we are so preoccupied now with the idea of backing up our writing with sales that writers have gotten to the point where we are so busy with blogging and tweeting and YouTube, um, with going to conferences, this one's good, um, that you forget that the chief job of a writer is to sit in the chair and write. Um, I did my first tour four books in. Um, I had a backlist of three books and a fourth one in hardback before I went on tour. And I think that was about right. Um, doesn't work for everyone. Some people have a big book out of the gate and you then have problems because you then have to deal with being a new author and being a successful author at the same time, which is often a problem. Not always, sometimes. Um, but I would suggest that whenever you commit yourself to doing a blog tour or a set of tweets or any of the social networking sites, that you ask yourself, am I happy with the amount of time I am spending writing? And if the answer is no, then, then don't do any of the other stuff. Um, this is something I, I just, I feel that I need to mention because um, we feel so strongly that the publishers have abandoned us and it's really not true. What they have abandoned is books that don't continue to sell because the author is not continuing to write the very best book they possibly can. So those are my 12 rules. Um, I, I would like to say just something else about this, this picture. Um, that the two women in the front, the poor sisters who are sitting at the feet of those men, could also be taken as 
analogous to poor old crime fiction. And, and even if you want to be generous, um, romance fiction as well. But to just talk about crime fiction at this point, that we are continually seated away from the chairs of authority. We are not reviewed seriously. Um, on the other hand, if you think of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, and that famous thing that said about Ginger Rogers, that she did everything he did, only in heels and backwards. <laughs> and then look at those two women. Um, we as writers of crime fiction, all we have to do is to achieve all that easy balance and sophistication that the writer of serious fiction does, only backwards and in high heels. We have to make our fiction fit into a form and to keep to the rules and at the same time undermine them to make it appear that our craft is non-existent and that our attention is elsewhere. And you will notice, too, when you look at this picture, what figures do you actually see? <laughs> Who's on the bestseller list? It's, it's not, you know, three nameless men and Robert Frost. It's, it's quite often people who are here in this bookstore um, writing crime fiction. Um, thank you, and thank you, Marilyn, for sharing your podium with me. Good night. That was wonderful. Take, take it all to heart. Inwardly digest. That was just brilliant. Thank you very much, Laurie. Just wonderful. Um, Sheldon is uh, going to kick off the late night critique now. So, um, well, Laurie, will you stay to sign some books? Oh, sorry, Laurie's signing books. I beg your pardon. And then straight through to the late night critique. So, uh, we haven't finished with you yet. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.